Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. If you like the show and want to see it reach more grieving ears and hearts, support Coming Back on Patreon at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. My Patreon supporters get exclusive access to weekly grief journaling prompts and live grief hangouts with me. Pledge for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Join this growing behind-the-scenes community now at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Thank you so much for listening to Coming Back. Just one more thing, grief growers. Do you ever feel trapped, stuck, or silenced in the aftermath of loss? Are you struggling to figure out who you are now or what your life is made of now that death, divorce, or diagnosis has steamrolled through? Whether you're trying to cultivate deeper self-compassion, figure out where grief belongs in your life now, or simply feel like you have more room to breathe, the three words your heart needs to hear are permission to grieve. Permission to Grieve is the title of my latest book, a tribute to the three little words that changed how I saw myself and my grief after the death of my mom. I know it has the power to change how you see yourself and your grief in whatever loss you're facing. You can find Permission to Grieve now on Amazon. Give yourself more grace, space, and room to breathe in the aftermath of loss, because we could all use a little more Permission to Grieve. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. On today's show, I'm talking to Christina Rasmussen, author of one of the very first grief books that changed my life, Second Firsts. Also this week, I'm sharing an excerpt from my brand new book, Permission to Grieve. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide and author who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Season 7 of Coming Back. Thank you so very much for listening today. First, 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 before we do anything else or talk about anything else, I have to tell you, you heard the ad at the top of the show, that my new book, Permission to Grieve, is here. It's out in the world, and it's waiting for you. You can buy it on Amazon in both an ebook or paperback version, and I just... I truly hope you get your hands on it, Grief Growers. It is a powerful little book that gives you permission to feel, be, and do in the aftermath of heartbreaking loss. And really just, I mean, the best way I can phrase it is that it brings you back to yourself. And in a world that asks us to separate our grief from ourselves and quarantine it off in the basement or at home or somewhere where people can't see it, that's a really incredible thing. Permission to grieve changed my life. Like that phrase changed my life, but the practice really changed my life. And I just know that it will change yours too. Literally everybody I've talked to about this is like, wow, 
that's such a novel idea. Like it never occurred to me to give myself permission to grieve. And this is the book that helps you do just that. It's just so, I'm so incredibly humbled and grateful and elated and just torn to pieces in so many ways by the launch of this thing, just having it out in the world. Permission to Grieve is a collection of the truths and stories and tools I've used to help me companion my grief for the past six years. And while it's based on some conversations we've had here on the podcast, most of it is stuff that I've never shared here on the show before. So if you want something that's A, powerful, B, life slash grief changing, and C, never before shared on coming back, pick up a copy or 12 (laughs) of Permission to Grieve. And I would be so, so grateful if you did. I'm just so glad to be here today. I want to take five seconds to, in this moment here at the top of the show, to thank my absolutely incredible launch team. For one full year since September of 2018, this group of 85 people has put eyes on my drafts and given feedback on content and answered a ton of questions that actually ended up being included in the book, all with the goal of making permission to grieve the absolute best it could be for other people who are reading it. And I think because of them, it is. And all of you and my launch team helped me do it. So if you're listening and you're a member of that exclusive 85, that Permission to Grieve launch team, thank you, thank you, thank you for making this a reality. Thank you for reading the drafts. Thank you for reading preliminary concepts of this. Thank you for leaving reviews. And thank you for starting to share and spread the word with your friends. I've started to see your posts on Facebook and Instagram and hashtag Permission to Grieve. And I just can't tell you how exciting that is. I also want to say a huge, enormous thank you to all of my Patreon supporters. Uh, Plain and simple, it costs money to put a book out into the world. And while I mostly talk about what Patreon supporters receive from me, like live grief support chats and grief journaling and all the other activities that we do that are grief-centric over on Patreon, I will wholeheartedly admit that support goes both ways. That's the point of Patreon. So people support me here for the work that I do. And then I support them with extra things like grief journaling, live grief chats, book recommendations, uh, and all that jazz. There's a lot of surprise stuff back there. But patrons, your financial support of this podcast and all of the work that I do literally made it so I could bring permission to grieve into the world. So if you're listening and you're a Patreon supporter of this podcast, Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, so Permission to Grieve is out in the world. If you haven't read it, go read it. If you have read it, leave a review on Amazon and Goodreads. If you've left a review on Amazon and Goodreads, share Permission to Grieve with somebody you love. Because like I say all the time here on Coming Back, you never know what someone you love is going through. So really quick, before I unveil a little bit of permission to grieve for you, I want to say a hearty congratulations to Karen S., who won the In the Meantime Grief Book Giveaway. Karen, I will be sending a copy of Modern Loss and and Then I Got Fired your way very, very soon in the mail. If you, listener, would like to win some grief books, hold tight until November 2019, which is when I'll be announcing the next grief books giveaway and all that you can win from our guests here on Coming Back. 
And if you'd like to join me for live grief support on September 23rd, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter of the show. Once a month, I go live over on a secret YouTube channel where you can ask me anything you like about grief, loss, and coming back. Just last month in the month of August, we talked about how our idea of strength changes in the aftermath of loss and how we can step out of our roles as sister, caretaker, coworker, leader, and ask other people to allow us to be grieving humans, kind of just like in circles of our friends and family, where oftentimes we're expected to hold up a role instead of allowing ourselves to be human grievers in the moments we really need to be human grievers. You can find links to everything I'm talking about here in the top of the show in the show notes, including a link to Permission to Grieve on Amazon and a link to my Patreon page where you can pledge to support the show and join us live on the private secret YouTube channel, September 23rd at 8 p.m. Central Time. Okay, so without further ado, I want to share a little bit of permission to grieve with you. This is an excerpt of the audiobook, which is currently being reviewed for submission in Audible. I know it's not there yet, but I promise you I'll tell you when it is. This excerpt is called The Ten Absolute Truths of Grief. It's a section that happens kind of in the beginning of the book and really sets the stage for what's to come. It's more or less my bedrock foundation and the jumping point off from from which the rest of the book grows. Like, if all of these things are true, then all of these other things must also be true. So see if this piece of permission to grieve rings true for you. The Ten Absolute Truths of Grief Throughout this book, I'm going to be operating by the following truths. These are themes, patterns, and universal truths I've uncovered through my continued research and in my own grief. This may be the first time you're seeing grief through this lens, so just read through these truths for now, and then come back to this page if it calls to you. 1. Grief is a normal, natural human experience. 2. Grief is not fixable, curable, or preventable. It is not a condition or pathology. 3. Once grief enters your life, it remains a part of your life, whether you acknowledge it or not. 4. Any loss is a valid reason to grieve, from death, divorce, and diagnosis to loss of a job, home, or dream. What is devastating for one person might not be devastating to another, and vice versa. 5. Grief looks, feels, and shows up differently to each person. Just like no two losses are alike, no two griefs are alike either. You cannot know the full depth of another person's experience, and they cannot know the full depth of yours. 6. Any tool or skill is a valid coping mechanism. What speaks to one person's grief might not speak to another person's grief, and vice versa. 7. Grief is fluid and changing. It looks different with age, time, and experience. 8. You cannot change, fix, or remove another person's grief. You cannot spare someone the pain of grieving a loss. Your grief belongs to you. Their grief belongs to them. 9. Grief is pervasive. It cannot be quarantined any more than love can be quarantined. 
Grief affects all areas of life. 10. The solution to grief is not a pain-free existence. It is allowing ourselves to grieve and witnessing ourselves in that process. Permission and presence are the remedies for agony and isolation. If any of these absolute truths rings true for you or your grief, please pick up a copy of Permission to Grieve on Amazon. It's the book that my heart needed in the aftermath of loss, and I know it's going to speak to your heart too. Thank you so much, Grief Growers, for supporting me on this book writing journey, and we have just begun. It's so exciting. I cannot wait to see how Permission to Grieve changes the way that you do grief. Up next, my conversation with Christina Rasmussen, author of Second Firsts and Where Did You Go? Grief is setting sail twice on the 2020 bereavement cruises to join a boatload of grieving hearts for interactive grief workshops, heart healing craft projects, Circles of Hope, and a beautiful candlelit night of remembrance at sea. Request more information at comingbackcruise.com. You'll be contacted by the cruise's organizer and previous Coming Back podcast guest, Linda Finley, to hear more about your choice of two tropical cruises setting sail in 2020. And when you're ready, she'll help you reserve your spot on board. Bereavement cruise cabins do go quickly, so request more information now at comingbackcruise.com where grief finds support and community on the open sea. Christina Rasmussen is an author, speaker, and social entrepreneur who believes that grief is an evolutionary experience required for launching a life of adventure and creative accomplishment. Her mission is to bring the grief industry into the 21st century and help millions of people break out of what she calls the waiting room with her life reentry model. Christina created this model to demonstrate that when people are told to wait for time to heal them, they go to a place between two lives, the life they leave behind after loss and the life they have yet to experience. But they stay stuck in the space between due to the brain's addictive and automatic tendencies to resist change of any kind. Christina's work has been featured on ABC News, NPR, the White House blog, and other networks and media platforms. She's the best-selling author of Second Firsts, and just released her next book, Where Did You Go?, at the end of 2018. You can find out more about her work and upcoming projects at ChristinaRasmussen.com. Well, Christina, I am so delighted to have you on coming back today. I told you before we started recording that I have a little post-it note up on my bulletin board of dream guests when I started this show two years ago. Um, I found you indirectly through another guest named Stephanie Zamora, who's actually been kind of a guide for me on my own grief journey. But your book, Second First, was the first thing that really cracked me open in my grief to, wow, I'm living life again for the first time and allowed for a lot of self-forgiveness, which I was not giving myself in the midst of loss. So I'm excited to have you here. I'm excited to have you share your story with us and kind of what you're up to since Second First came Mm -hmm. out into the world. Um, But first, I would absolutely love it if you shared your loss story with us. Awesome. Shelby, thank you so much for inviting me and uh, your post-it note is doing its job um, and bringing bring your dreams um, into reality. I'm very honored and grateful that you invited me. Um, 
my story began in, gosh, in 2006 when my 35-year-old husband passed away from colon cancer. And I have to tell you that the devastation and just heartbrokenness was so intense and so severe that I wish it was me instead of him. And I had no idea how I was going to ever have a, a life again or or laugh again or, or feel alive again. And a lot of people don't know this about me. And I studied grief. I have a master's in counseling psychology. And my thesis was on the stages of bereavement. This is what I wanted to do for a living. And I had no idea how incredibly difficult feeling the grief versus um, understanding the theory of grief would have been. And so when he died, I really thought that my pain would last forever and ever and ever. I felt there was this duality in my life where I looked, I actually looked great from the outside. I, I often say I looked my best after he died. I looked, I was at the perfect weight. I wasn't eating very much. I was um, glowing for some reason. It was, it was so bizarre to me that I looked so good and yet I was dead inside. And that's where I started uh, thinking about the duality of loss and how everything looks the same on the outside, but everything is different from the inside. And my journey began, my journey of uh, what I now call life reentry began then. Um, and I had, and also for those who don't know, I also had two little girls at the time, ages four and six years old, and uh, having to tell tell them that their dad had passed was the worst moment of my life. And especially for the six-year-old, uh, Alina, who's now 19, <laughs> I know time Time is a weird thing. Um, she and I, and I share this in my in my book. Second verse that she cried adult tears, and, and I, I I remember that moment to this day so clearly. But that's how my journey began. And prior to his passing, we were fighting his cancer, colon cancer, which for a thirty he was diagnosed at age thirty one, stage four, and he died at age thirty five. For thirty something year old guy who looked amazing and was very healthy. That was kind of a, a weird diagnosis, very, very rare and very unexpected. So his death was almost like a really bad accident or um, even to this day, I think about it and can't believe that colon cancer took him so young. And and when I look back now, I realize how young I was then, how much I didn't know, how much I didn't understand, and how much life we were going to live without him. I didn't know how much, how much little life I had lived and how much life was coming ahead of me. I know that sounds a bit strange to say, but, but living for 13 years now, after he had passed, I realized how much he missed, how much he didn't experience how many graduations, how many birthdays, how many, how many changes, how many moves we've made, how many houses we moved to, he, he never got to see. And, um, and that is something I never 
feel better about, you know, people say to me, you know, do you still think about that? I'm like, sure, it wasn't fair. Anyone who loses their person, their safety net, their, their love of their life, their child, their, 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 their person, this is never going to be fair and it's never going to be okay. And um, I don't really like the saying, everything happens for a reason. Because <laughs> I don't know. I mean, sure, there were so many gifts from my grief and I have helped so many people because of him. But um, still not a good enough reason for him to go. I want to thank you so much for sharing your story. And the thing that I wrote down that sprang out to me the most was this idea of grief in theory versus grief in practice. Like I studied grief. I, I should, I should know. I did my project on bereavement and, um, and my thesis on bereavement and had all these, you know, these theories about grief and the way it's supposed to look lined up. And then, but to actually practice it as you get plunged into the experience and you're like, wow, hell, like that's, different. And and it's coming up again in this reiterated idea of yours about time and how time works in grief. Because mm-hmm. at the beginning, you're like, in theory, I'm living the rest of my life without him. And it seems so vast and so big. And then grief and practice, you really are kind of marking off each of these birthdays, graduations, milestones without him. And I imagine, at least for me in my grief, the the feeling of, I'm never going to be happy again, I don't know how to live life without her for the loss of my mom versus crossing off all of these milestones still without her are two different feelings. They're still both incredibly sad in their own ways. Kind of like grief in theory is sad. Grief in practice is sad, but they're sad in two totally different ways. I'm wondering if you can expound on that idea more for us of like, what did you think grief was going to be? And then what did actually show up for you? (laughs) Yeah. And and, you know, when I, I, I used to, um, I used to live in Houston, Texas, many, 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 many years ago. Now I'm back in Texas, in Austin, Texas now, but in my first life, as I call it. Um, so I used to work at this hospice and I used to facilitate uh, grief support groups. And and I remember, you know, sitting there as the facilitator prior to, to losing him, uh, prior to his diagnosis, prior to anything happening. Um and I could tell, of course, the pain that people were going through was so vast and so horrible and devastating. I couldn't even imagine how it would be. And, and, and one thing I want to add also is that I remember when I was deciding on my thesis, my um, uh, being on the stage of bereavement for, with Elizabeth Colby-Ross, I remember my professor at the time saying, but Christina, you're such a happy person. Why on earth would you choose such a depressing topic to, to study? And I said... I said to her, you don't understand. I I want to know how to help people get through such devastating pain. I love people so much. I couldn't imagine losing them. My biggest fear was to lose the people I love. And when, when he died, the difference between theory or facilitating a support group or hearing people's stories or really understanding the, the literature of grief versus the reality of it was just such a big gap. I never, ever imagined the, I, I wanted to scream at the world and say to them, you know, I'm on, I, I'm on fire. Nobody's throwing me any water to take it out. I'm, I'm, I'm broken in pieces and everything's just moving forward the way it was. And I was also so angry at the world because if it was hurting so much, if it was hurting me so much, 
I knew that there were millions of people in the world that were hurting exactly the same and nobody was doing anything about it. And I couldn't understand that. It was almost like all of a sudden I got the memo of, of what grief feel, really feels like. And I was shocked at, at the reality of it and how the world just kept on going by as if nothing had happened to me or to all the millions of people who have gone through this, this experience. I mean, knowing what I, what I learned after he died and, and, and the, the depths of pain, if, if so many people have felt that in their lives, the government, education departments, schools should by now have had <laughs> better response to grief, better, better therapy sessions, better, I don't know, models, better resources. And yet it is the, the industry that's lagging behind the most from everything that we have in the world today. It's the, it's the industry that stayed back and a whole century, you know, and, and I remember hearing, and I get so animated about this, doesn't matter how many years I've been teaching this, but I remember hearing, um, you know, over and over again, Christina, just give it time. I'm like, time heals all wounds. And I'm like, what? this is such BS. Like I'm dying now. I can't wait years for me to feel better. I can't be in this pain forever. How dare you tell me to give it time? Or the other thing, I have this friend <laughs> who I'm sure she didn't mean anything by it, but it used to bother me so much. She used to say to me, just take one day at a time. And I wanted to scream at her and say, you have no idea what a whole day of grieving feels like. You have no clue. Taking a day at a time feels like a year at a time, 10 years at a time. An hour at a time was hard enough. A moment at a time and and I want to say just about the first the first few you know weeks of of the grief of of losing him it was so painful and devastating that I couldn't be inside my body like I couldn't be I couldn't be I, I couldn't be and, and and the knowledge that you know so many people have that feeling you know as as the as the time was going by I remember promising myself if I'm ever going to make it back to living, I will go back and get everyone else. And that's what I did. I just love that. That sentiment just gave me chills just now um, because it's so, you just think about this in such a different perspective. It was like your immediate instinct to take your own situation and say, oh my God, if this is how all of them have been feeling, then holy crap, I can't believe any of us is alive right now, really. And it's it's kind of um, that quote that circles online every now and then, the be kind for everyone you know is fighting a battle you know nothing about. Yes. Like yes. succinct yes. in this little teeny tiny way of like, oh yeah, so everybody's got these really complicated inner worlds and losses and pains and grief just like me, then I have to be nicer to everyone and not nice in like a fake way. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? It's more of a like a deliberate tenderness that needs to happen with the human hearts. Um, I wrote down a question for you that's a little bit, it's dicey. It's a little bit obscene and it's totally opinion-based. Um, but based on your like practice as somebody who led grief support groups before having experienced a loss and then experiencing a loss and being like, wow, there's this is the depth of it. I wonder 
do you think that people who have never experienced like a high caliber loss should be allowed to lead or facilitate grief support groups? This is a very big question. And I, I've heard so many stories from people who come to me and say, Christina, you have no idea what my, you know, facilitator said or what my counselor said, my therapist. And obviously they've never lost a child or they've never lost a, a spouse or a parent or whatever that immediate, there's a circle, right? There's a circle of um, a few people around us that if we lose one of those people, it, it is one of that very high level uh, of, of grief. It's devastating. It's identity crushing. It's deliberating. I mean, it, it, it is, it is, uh, it's the worst thing in the world. Um, and when the facilitator or the therapist has not had the experience of that level of loss. Actually, I don't know why I'm getting chills when I'm saying this. Maybe it's because it's true, but they are not able or capable to have the compassion that is necessary to feel, to um, to create a healing experience in that group, number one. And they don't have the ability to validate and acknowledge all the invisible loss experiences that are happening within that main loss because they don't have the experience to, 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 to talk about it and to mirror it back and to validate and acknowledge someone saying, um, I ate dinner alone at home at night again. And, and, and when that person looks up at that therapist or facilitator, they need to be able to see in their eyes the knowing of how that feel, feels like. The loneliness that that person feels every single night at home, they need to have that knowing in their eyes. And when that's missing and it's replaced with, mm-hmm, oh yeah, that must be hard, you destroy your client, you destroy your, your group participant. However, I'm, I'm sure and I've heard of you know, great um, therapists and facilitators who, who are compassionate human beings, period. And they are very present and they're amazing listeners and they can do, they can do this really well, regardless of their experience, but they're, they're the minority, um, but they do exist. So um, my, my answer to this is not so much black and white. I just think that when someone has had a devastating loss, they're able to reflect uh, better and be more able to hold the space in a human way versus someone who's never had that experience. But there are people out there, professionals, that are such amazing listeners and such compassionate souls um, that are able to do it really well. And I've seen it, even, even if it's a few times, I have seen it. I think that's such a brilliant answer. And I literally just wrote down, they can reflect better. And I underlined the word reflect because it is, it's never... I have had your exact experience. So let me tell you what that's like. It's I've had a similar experience so we can sit alongside together and look at this. Um, I, with a lot of the clients I work with, I often use the the metaphor of the dining room table, like pretend I invite you into my house and we both stand around my dining room table, which is totally empty. And then we take the entire contents of your brain and toss them on the table and we can kind of sort through stuff and like look at it or put it back together or take it apart together because I've had my brain on a dining room table <laughs> before, kind of all spread yes. out in a thousand million pieces. And, uh, and now it's just your turn. And it's, it's creates that safe space, but also the, it's creates a safe space, but also a deep space when somebody has had that 
level of loss with you. And that makes me want to transfer immediately to another question because you were speaking earlier about, you know, friends telling you just give it time or, you know, take it one day at a time or things like that. And this thing happens in loss where our friends don't know what to do with us anymore if they have never experienced a devastating loss. And one of my favorite grief practitioners, Glenn Lord, who's one of the co-founders of the Bereavement Cruise, he talks about how we sometimes need to educate our friends on how to speak to us while grieving. And I wonder if you think that's our job at all, should be our job. And if, <laughs> if our friends can be taught, if they can, what do we say? If they can't, what do we say? <laughs> Either way. You know, it's, it's a, it's a great question. And, um, and I think the only job we have when we're grieving is to take care of ourselves. And if someone fails at reflecting well with us and they can't do it, then we spend less time with them until we're ready to maybe educate them. The very first thing that we do as um, grievers is that we surround ourselves with people who do have the ability to to hold the space for us. Because in the beginning, and I always say life entry in second first is not for the beginning. It is it is for some people, and I, I you know people have done the the work, the life entry work, and and have read the book really early. And there are some people who waited for a long time to read it. It depends depends where you are with your grief, but. In the beginning, um, the first response to grief um, for us is to to really do whatever it is that we need to get by. And you know, Shelby, I have to tell you this that always gives me chills when I share this. I haven't shared it many times. Actually, I remember my husband, um, Biana, who my husband, my first husband. Um, I don't like saying first um, or second. I don't. I don't like he. He's my husband in. In, uh, in heaven or universe, and I have a husband here on earth. They're both husbands. <laughs> and, and I'm a little weird and out of the box when I talk about these things, so I don't ever want to sound like everyone else. But he told me, um, well, he, we knew he was going to die for, for a long time. He, he was fighting the cancer for three and a half years. And he said to me, after I'm gone, do whatever it takes to get yourself through this. Whatever it takes whatever it takes. And that is the advice I give people. Do not think about educating anyone else. Tell them what they need to tell you. They will learn as time goes and uh, goes along. And, and if they're really good friends, they will adapt and and be a part of your world. And they will, they will follow your lead in the way that you live your life. I've had um, many friends that I've lost after he died, but I've also had a couple of friends that stayed from, from those years and they just listened and kept calling even after I never answered the phone 20 times. Those days we didn't have text. We had texts, but the phone calls were more, um, you know, uh, regular. People would call you if they wanted to talk to you. Um, so I stopped answering the phone and, and, and people stopped calling. But there were a couple of people who stayed and they kept calling, just checking in kept inviting me even when I would say no and and they waited for the time that I would say yes. So the good friend, the person who loves you, they don't need to understand your pain. They're just gonna be with you and just be and that's it. And they will learn by 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 seeing you go through this. Um, but do whatever 
to get you through in this beginning um, of the journey because that's the part that is so devastating that um, I have to say that it could destroy us, it could kill us, um, it could completely derail us forever and we don't want that. So don't educate anyone in the beginning, just take care of yourself. And the one thing that I did not do a good job with and I wish someone had told me uh, that then and for everyone who's listening, and they're on that first year or two of their journey, take care of yourself first before anyone else. And I cannot emphasize this enough. Like, you know, nourish yourself. Go for a massage. Choose yourself. If you don't want to go out for dinner with a friend, say, no, I'm sorry, I can't. Do not explain yourself. Just say no. If, you, if you're overworking, take a break. Um, if you're not happy in a relationship, get out of it. Like, be selfish. Be selfish as much as possible. Take care of yourself, and then if you have kids, then take care of them. It's not the other way around. It's not about your kids, but it's about you, because without you, nobody will have anyone by their side. So self-care, self-love, self-care, 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 and to surround yourself with the very few people who will be able to listen and just be there. And it won't be about their grief. It won't be about their experience. It will be about you. Because there are people, and um, Shelby, I know, I'm sure you've met them, that make your grief about them. Oh, you didn't call me back. And, you know, obviously you don't want to see us anymore. The moment you hear conversations like that, <laughs> run the other direction. Run as fast as possible. I think you just dished out so many permission slips and i love it and the first one came from your husband do whatever it takes because oh, that's to yes. me my ears that sounds like go skydiving have a bunch of crazy sex yes. eat the chocolate cake whatever you have yes. to do to yes. get through this thing yes. and and for me i think in my loss i was looking for permission to be crazy because it felt like such a crazy experience i was like this is so insane it can't possibly yeah. be my life and so i needed to do insane things to comprehend it um and and it's just permission to like you said be selfish because there's this societal belief that like don't become a saint oh my god so well so that don't exact i mean and i wish someone had come and told me this i wish because it is like you said and shelby you said it so well it is such a crazy insane experience and you're gonna make you better make mistakes then you better be making mistakes I've made mistakes during those early days, weeks, months, years. Make mistakes. Your new identity is nowhere near. Your old identity is out the window. And you're in this gap, in this waiting room, in this place between lives. And you don't even know your name, really. You forget You forget who you are in the morning. You, you're confused when you go to bed at night and crying and upset. And you cannot function and you should not be expected to. And anyone who expects you to function in this first couple of years, they don't deserve you. And you should never see them again. And I'm sorry, I'm very direct when it comes to this, Shelby. I like that, though, because it, it removes the doubt. It removes the question of, like, well, they've been my best friend for 10 years, or they're my relative, or, you know, they're one of my estranged children coming back because of the loss, and I should give them a chance. I'm like, no, do not. You just don't have yeah. the capacity for chances right now. No. Yes. And also dating. And I remember I have this question being asked 
of me so many times. And, and one of the things people say to me, what if my kids, and a lot of people who lose spouses specifically as well, they, um, they have older kids and um, they're not as young as I was. They, they have either teens, uh, teenage kids who have a lot to say about your decisions or adult kids. And those kids don't want them, their parent, their parent uh, dating um, anytime soon. And I have all these horrible, painful emails that come in and put human souls. This, uh, I want to hug them and say, Christina, I met this person and I want to go out on a date, but my daughter doesn't want me to. And she's really upset with me for seeing this guy. What should I do? And I'm like, oh my God, this is so cruel. It is so cruel because it's your daughter, right? And you want to make them happy. They also lost their father, you know, and 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 people have such a hard time shall be saying yes to themselves. And so if you're if someone is listening, you better go out and do whatever you want. People will get over it. It's not their life, it's yours. I hear you so much on that. And I think in those situations, especially, it's like, what what are we really talking about here? Like it's, it's never about the date. It's not about the date. It's something else is changing that I can't control. And that's really scary, but they're not having that conversation. You're saying, mom, don't go out with that guy. (laughs) And, um, and I'm laughing about it, but these conversations can get, you know, knock down, drag out, fight worthy, move out of the house. Siri, they're scary to have. You're like, I've already lost so much and I don't want to lose my kids too. So there's a, there's a risk in in putting yourself first in grief. But I mean, I'm totally on board with you. I'm like, that is absolutely necessary. Yeah. And, and people say, you know, it's so easy to say and so hard to do. And, and please know we get this. I, I get it. I get how hard it is to do it. Um, but your grief is harder. Your grief is harder and your loss is harder. And, and you're the one who's going to bed alone at night and you will have guilt and shame when you are starting over again, I remember when I had to pick my my new wedding dress. I, I, I went there and I put it on and looked in the mirror and I was like, "Oh my God, what am I doing?" I felt so guilty. I mean, we are ourselves worst enemies, you know. I was like, "How can I? How can I marry again? How how can I love someone else again?" You know, shame on me. The guilt, survivor's guilt, is massive, but. But we cannot let that voice, I call that, I call that voice the survivor self. Um, we can't let that voice speak to us for too long and we need to shut it down and we need to start living life um, as, much, as soon as possible. And, and even if it takes the smallest, most ridiculous steps like buying lipstick or, you know, um, something so easy that you may think that it doesn't count as a step, it does. It really does. And I think that's the perfect place to transition into kind of like the inspiration and the story behind Second First. And I love that you Mm -hmm. gave a disclaimer of like, don't read it in the immediate aftermath, because there are books for that. There are meditations for that. that. And one of my favorite phrases comes from the grief recovery method. And I asked one of my instructors as I was going through that certification, I said, when should I start telling people is a good time to take this? And she said, this exactly. She said, as soon as the numbness wears off. And I thought yes, that was yes. such a perfect like entry point of like, okay, I realize I'm here. I want to go somewhere next. Like you're just starting to see the horizon line again. And that's when yes. I found your book second first. And it was literally like the perfect foot in the door at the time. And I was like, <laughs> yes. And I finally got, got to 
to sink my teeth into something. And if I'm remembering correctly, I haven't read the full manuscript probably in at least a year or two, but I feel like it started with a trip to the mailbox. There was a mailbox story. Oh, the mail, the mailman story. Oh my gosh. Yes. So let me, let me share that. And I've shared this on stage so many times and, and it's interesting how this story and the mailman story has spoken to people from all over the world. And people have written to me to tell me their own mailman story, which wasn't the mailman, but something else, you know, something similar to that. Um, and so here, how it, how it was, and it was, it was Christmas. It was just a few days before Christmas. And I used to live in the Boston area and there was a lot of snow and it was going to be the first Christmas alone. Um, it was the second Christmas since he passed, but the first Christmas, the first holidays alone with, with the girls. And of course, uh, you know, I'm a little silly. I told my parents not to come and visit me because I wanted to really know what this reality is like for real. Like, let's not have anyone at home um, confusing me that I'm not alone. Um, so I told them not to come and oh, I was feeling sorry for myself. And um, my life was just so dreadful and horrible and terrible. And and because of the snow, the, the mailman um, had, stop, had stopped um, um, giving us the, the mail, um, putting it in the mailbox because there was so much snow accumulated outside of our mailbox. And of course, I hadn't shoveled um, <laughs> lately and um, I was working full time at the time and um, I didn't have time. So on a Saturday morning, I'm like, we need those those cards, the Christmas cards. We need the letters. We need we need magazines, we need things, we need gifts. So me and the girls went down, we shoveled and shoveled and cleared up the space, a good enough space to, for, for the, the little male truck to stop in front of it. So here we go, we go back into the house and I'm, I'm actually, the girls are playing, they're you know under 10 years old and just they don't really care much about anything but themselves. So they're playing there in the background and I'm waiting to see to see when he arrives and drops off the mail so I could go and get it. And actually our driveway was long. I promise you a very small house, but with a really long driveway. It had like this natural, horrible pond in front of it. So the driveway would go, the driveway would go around the pond. And so the mailbox was far, but I could see it from the window. So I'm looking and the, the car, the little mail car is arriving slowly, slowly, slowly stops in front of the mailbox and then starts driving again without any mail being delivered. And whatever happened to me in that moment in time was divine intervention. Um, it was the universe uh, helping me change paths. I don't know what it was, but it was a very, very big moment in my life. I had two options. I had option one was to sit back down on the couch and cry. And cry my eyes out and say, look, I can't even get my Christmas cards. I can't even, my life sucks. My life is just dreadful. And option two, the crazy one, Toby, was to put on my, my snow boots. And I had my, actually I had my, my not PJs, but kind of like PJs underneath the, um, everything. It was Saturday when I went to travel, put on my big coat and kind of ski thing on, you know, um, nobody could see underneath. So I had my kind of BJs on and I put my, my snow boots on. I opened the door and I started running and running and running and running, crying like a crazy woman on the snow. 
and you know the <laughs> and I share this and I laugh about it now but the, the car would stop the hand would come out of the window open the box the mailbox of the house next door or the house next door put their mail in close and then he would drive to the next house and then do that so every time I would catch up with him he would drive off again and he could see me from his rear view uh, mirror. He could see me. I could see him. I could see his face from the mirror looking at me thinking, what is he doing? Because obviously I was not a runner. This was not with like sneakers on and so on. <laughs> and um, four blocks down, um, I caught him because he had delivered a package. So he had to leave the car. And so out of breath, so kind of, full of tears, mascara, you know, rolling down my eyes. And I catch him and I'm on one side of the, of the car and he's on the other and he's bending down so you can see me through the window, both open. And I look at him and he's like, yes, kind of looking at me, what do you want, you know? Okay, you know. And I said, you didn't uh, deliver my mail. And he knew who I was, which I found fascinating. He's like, well, um, there was not enough space for me to to stop the car delivery mail. I said, well, we shoveled today and we shoveled well. He said, well, he goes, you should have asked your husband to do it. And I swear this, <laughs> I was thinking to myself, who says that? Who? I mean, who says that? If this is not a divine intervention, I don't know what it is. And I said, you know, he would have if he could, but he can't because he's dead. Now give me my mail. This conversation really happened just like this. And his color on his face just, I mean, he went white. It's like I was uh, seeing a ghost. He gave me the mail. And he said, I'm so sorry. And I took the mail. I didn't just take my mail back. I took my life back. I was no longer going to let my life just drive by every single day. And, of course, we never missed our mail ever again. I remember going to the to the post office to to do something with the girls weeks later. And there he was waving at us, hi girls, you know, we were best friends all of a sudden. But that choice to I sit back down again and cry my eyes out about how horrible my life is versus to go out and get it made that was my first re-entry point. I call it the portal. It was like a portal opening and throwing me into this new chapter in my life. And things changed very quickly after that. Um, I get chills even just thinking about it. It was like, well, I know what it was now, but at the time I was so blown away by it. I got a, a massive promotion at work, like like a really big promotion at work. I remember I was a single mom working full time. That was a really big deal for me and my kids. And a few weeks after that, I went out on a first date with Eric, my husband today. So it was just. Um, Whatever I did when I, I know exactly why now, but that running, that chasing my life and saying no more, I'm not going to be a passive receiver, changed the direction of my life shall be completely. That's one of my all-time favorite stories ever because I remember as I was reading this for the first time, I was sitting, I had this little green chair that I bought from Ikea on my birthday the year after my mom died. And I was sitting in this chair and I was verbally like rooting for you the whole time and when he like no. started driving away I was like no he did not and I was so yes. upset on your behalf and then you were like well he would but he's dead and I was like you fucked 
tell him. And I was just like ready to, know. you know, when people shout at the television, like I shout at books when I read. Yes. <laughs> and I yes. had this yes. moment yes. where I, was, I, I felt like I was having this experience with you because I didn't necessarily, there's so many grievers who have these lightning bolt experiences that just bring them back. And for me, it was this very slow kind of like egg cracking open where I kind of pulled all these little pieces into my world one by one. And then I was ready to join the world myself. And so it was not this like revolutionary moment, but oh my goodness, I was like so floored. And yet I identified with it still. Like I can point to about a three or four month time span where I was like, then that's when I started to choose for myself. And, and a bit, and she'll be a bit. And, and for those who are listening, you know, what is your male, male man story? The thing is, um, I believe that you and everyone who's listening has had one of those stories, but um, the brain stops us from seeing it as a portal. And there's got to be, and I always look for it in people's stories, um, I always look for it, there's got to be a moment, a simple moment, a small moment that you made a different choice and maybe you didn't have to greet a very rude pale man <laughs> telling me that I should have asked my husband to shovel instead of myself, which, I mean, seriously, like, maybe, you know, he didn't have that part of the story, but um, I really believe that everyone's everyone's life at a moment of, of change has a, a, a seemingly insignificant story like this, and they are portals, they're entry points, they're the beginning of a new chapter. I think that's the perfect place to let people know where they can find Second First, which is one of the first books that ever changed my life. And I know that you have another book, at least one other book, as well as like certification courses. And my favorite lately has been your podcast, which is called the Dear Life Podcast. So let us know where we can find everything it is that you do. So um, I try to consolidate everything to, um, to one site even though all the other sites exist and people go to them all the time. But ChristinaRasmussen.com has everything in it. But of course, there's also secondfirst.com where I share my, my weekly blog. Um, if there is a place to begin um, with my work would be to receive the, the Friday letter, um, which I'm hoping shall be, that will become a book one day. I've been writing this blog for over eight years now, every Friday. And he has traveled the globe um, and has reached thousands and thousands of people who read it and wait for it, wait for it every single Friday. So we'll sign up for that. You can sign up for that. Uh, ChristinaResmi.com, secondfirst.com. There, there's links to, to, to bo- on both of those sites. Um, so second first, uh, the book, you can find it on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble, on any bookstore. There, the new edition it has been re-released. Very, very proud of that. It was re-released by Hay House for a second edition new cover um, uh, last this May. This last May. So make sure when you go and buy it, it has the new cover. Um, people uh, try to buy the old one and they buy it secondhand because it doesn't exist anymore, and they pay a lot more money. So don't do that. Um, second firsts on Amazon. And it's white with with the watercolor on on it. Um, So look for that version. And then last December, I wrote a book called Where Did You Go? Um, Which um, takes you on a journey through physics and through um, 
the laws of the universe from from a science point of view to understanding what reality is made of. Because even though I re-entered and changed my life and did so many great things, um, the answer to the question, where did you go, was not given to me. I couldn't understand where he went and where kind of the person that we love so much and um, they're here one day and go on the other. And um, I had to go and answer that question for myself. And for me, just like the second, first science and um, data out there is, is vital uh, for my journey. So I took everyone on a, on a very fascinating um, path. And um, I can um, safely say that the book, Where Did You Go? Um, can you believe it has even more readers than second, first did at the, time, at the same time? I, I'm blown away by it. And, um, and we have, um, when you buy the book, uh, we have a private Facebook group for anyone who's reading the book. And I run live uh, journeys uh, on that private Facebook group uh, free, completely. This is just for anyone who reads the book and wants to collectively experience um, uh, the, the journeys, uh, the temple journeys that I call um, from where did you go? So where did you go is published by HarperCollins and you can find it anywhere, Amazon, um, Barnes & Noble bookstores. Um, and then I have, um, I'm very proud of this, Omega, the Omega Institute has invited me to teach a four-day life reentry workshop. <laughs> Shelby, I am so excited because this is the only, only live in-person life reentry workshop that I'm delivering. Uh, the only one. Whereas I'm not doing it any because I'm not doing it in any other way because there is also a, a big clinical trial underway. I'm not sure if you know this, and uh, maybe I shouldn't be saying it. I, I think it's okay to say it. Um, but but a, a huge fund um, came to a foundation to study life reentry and me. So we're going to spend the next three years um, on clinical trial um, wow. with, with scientists. Yes, to make to make life reentry uh, be a part of every organization and every hospice and every hospital and every support group. And on that note, so Omega, end of September in New York, four days. Um, there's a link on my ChristinaResmond.com site and uh, at Omega as well. And then also the other thing I'm going to do is that we are in the process of doing is I'm putting together a facilitator guide, a life reentry facilitator guide. And it's not going to cost a lot of money because I want to give this to the world, Shelby. Um, we are I'm putting it together now. So anyone who wants to run a life reentry support group, they can do it wherever they are in the world, whoever they are. They will just have the guide and they will, it will guide them for every single session. So those life reentry classes that I used to do, now they will become a part of everyone, everyone who wants to do them and who wants to run them. This is my gift to the world. This is what I, I want to be remembered by. And um, so the facilitator um, life reentry guide I'm hoping it will be available mid-fall and just just before Christmas, hopefully. And um, and I'm going to make it very easy for everyone to have it. That is my goal because I believe in this. It's much bigger than, I, than me and, and the regular business models that are out there, Shelby. So I just want everyone to have it. We have people writing to me all the time, Christina, I have a group of widows and we want to run a life entry group. How, can, I, can I use the book? 
And the answer to that is yes, we have people who just use the book to run life reentry groups right now. And maybe um, I will do another life reentry uh, practitioner um, training, but because of the clinical trial right now, I'm so busy with that. that and, it, and that will have a much bigger effect um, than, than running a small group of uh, life reentry uh, practitioners. So my, my response to that is that I'm going to put the guide together so people can have it and can run those groups um, without me. So that's the plan. And, and I think the last thing I want to say is um, life reentry is, 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 a, is a second responder. Um, grief support groups and, and grieving is the first response. And never forget that we can reenter without um, sharing our story first, without, without doing grief. We have to do grief. Um, and life reentry can only be successful if that takes place first. But um, we've had many people who would buy the book second first and just leave it at the bedside table. And then they knew when, when they were ready to, to read it. And the, the book would call them, I guess, and then they would open the pages and start. I mean, that reflects exactly the experience that I had on this journey. Again, it's that sensation of where the numbness wears off. It's yeah. like, then you know you're ready to reach for the thing. It's calling to you. Um, and, and even larger, hearkening back to the beginning of our conversation, I just see in you this, this desire, this urge, um, this need to take what you have experienced and make it universal. This promise of, yeah. God, help me. If I get through this, I'm bringing up everybody else with me. And, and that's so powerful. It's not required in grief. You're never required to bring anybody else up along the road with you. But, but when you're... But when you're called or when you make that kind of contract with the universe, like it seems impossible not to fulfill it. It just consumes you. So I hear that in your voice. <laughs> Even when I try to run away and I have tried to run away from this, the universe brings me right back. I was actually trying to run away from, from this um, two, like two weeks prior to the Kinka trial um, uh, grant that came through. And I remember I made all these changes, these decisions. I was doing, I was working so hard, Shelby. And then I said, no more. I'm not going to work so hard. I'm going to just, 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 just let it go right now. The moment I did that, it was almost like the universe. What? No. Here, here is a big gift. And it was the biggest gift anyone could ever give for life injury. I mean, this, as you know, you know how many grief certifications and grief uh, coaching programs are out there. This does not happen. This does not happen, Shelby. And it did for life reentry. And it did. And it yeah. did. And it did. Like the, I just am resting in that reality. Christina, thank you so much for coming on coming back today. This has been a joy and a dream come true. And I'm just holding so much space for everything that's coming next for you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I loved every second of it, Shelby. Thank you. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so very much to Christina Rasmussen for joining me here today on Coming Back. I am so honored to have shared space with someone whose work was a literal cornerstone of my own coming back. Christina came back by deciding, in that chasing the mailman moment, that she was going to do whatever it takes to get through this, and by deciding to step out of her own waiting room and into her new life of second firsts. 
You can find Second Firsts, Christina's next book, Where Did You Go?, and all of her upcoming events and projects at ChristinaRasmussen.com, which is listed in the show notes for this episode. You can find my book, Permission to Grieve, now on Amazon. To keep this little grief podcast going and to receive insider bonuses like weekly grief journaling prompts, podcast swag, and live grief video chats with me, pledge to support the show at patreon.com slash Shelby Forsythia. Thank you so adoringly much this week to Nick, Kyoko, Ed, Kathy, Brooke, Georgina, Stephen, Rebecca, and Brittany, who all pledged to support coming back in the month of August in my time away. I could not put on this show without all of you. Thank you so much. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and tell a friend about Coming Back. Because as we say on Coming Back, you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you so much to Mr. Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or a comment for a future show, email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I'm proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing.